your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. One of those rare days when the question that I asked this morning on the trivia show was not answered. So here we go. We're going to ask it again. What is the relationship between uh, Plaster City, which is a city in California, and Tofu? Looking for the relationship between Tofu and Plaster City, California. If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can, of course, also text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is in chemistry, and as I keep telling you, it is my view that chemistry is the science that binds the other sciences together. Uh, if you have a feel for what molecules are all about and what they can and cannot do, you have pretty good insight for what can or cannot happen in the world. So we're going to discuss a lot of interesting things today besides Plaster City, California. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, a new product called Flacusense, which uh, supposedly will unleash a rosy aroma while it relieves gas. Also, there's some interesting uh, developments in uh, combating baldness. Inventors have come up with a device that supposedly grows hair. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But uh, first, very tragic story you may have seen uh, last week uh, about uh, a house fire in which uh, uh, people died. Uh, it was in, in Lachine, and it happened because of smoking in bed. Well, everyone knows smoking is dangerous, you know, but if you're looking for, you know, another reason to give it up, I mean, obviously, here's another one. Home fires kill more people in North America than all natural disasters combined. And you know those natural disasters, I mean, we see them all the time. We see the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the, the uh, forest fires, but home fires kill more people than all natural disasters combined. And the prime cause of these home fires is not faulty electrical wiring or a malfunctioning furnace. It is the cigarette. Numerous fires are started by smokers falling asleep in bed with their still-glowing cigarettes kindling the sheets, pillowcases, or carpets. Pipe smokers and cigar smokers rarely suffer this fate. And that's because cigarettes are specially treated, so they should not extinguish easily in order to eliminate the constant relighting that afflicts pipe smokers. The process is simple. The paper and tobacco are treated with saltpeter, that's potassium nitrate. Saltpeter has an undeserved reputation as a killjoy when placed into food of men with amorous thoughts on their minds. Uh, that just doesn't work. But as a combustion aid, it is excellent. When potassium nitrate is heated, it decomposes to potassium nitrite and oxygen. The oxygen, of course, supports combustion and keeps the cigarette lit. In fact, a primitive fuse can be made by soaking string in a solution of potassium nitrate. When dried, it burns very effectively. So here you go. There's another reason to uh, butt out. Cigarettes can kill us both from the inside as well as from the um, outside. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about this novel product, Flacusense which seems uh, kind of uh, humorous. And whenever you're talking about flattest, there's always you know a bit of uh, uh, humor associated with that. Uh, kids make fun of it. But when you get older, uh, you know, if you uh, have some digestive problems and you're constantly leaving, uh, 
eliminating gas and it has a disturbing odor, uh, that can be a problem. Well, this company, um, American company, has come up with this product that they're calling FlacuSense, actually a clever kind of, of, of name. And uh, the idea is that you take it and that whatever flattest you produce is going to have a much more pleasing uh, aroma. Apparently, it developed out of a, a product, a natural health product that was designed in order to relieve pressure in, in the gut uh, and to reduce flatulation. And uh, they observed that while it did that, it also lent a nice uh, fragrance to the emissions. It's some sort of a vegan product, and they're a little bit circumspect about exactly what, uh, what it contains. But uh, on the label, it does have uh, a list, although it's hard to know which ingredient here would be active. Uh, they include ginger powder, fennel seed powder, calcium. I'm sure they don't mean metallic calcium. Bee propolis, bilberry powder, peppermint powder, horseradish powder, rosehip powder. And all of this is in a, in a veggie capsule. Uh, do they have any evidence? None that I could really find. The uh, uh, promoters of this product say that uh, they have not published their results since uh, much of their uh, work uh, involves trade secrets, and they don't want any other company to get a, a hold of that. But uh, in, uh, in view of the fact that there's nothing published and there's no evidence, one, of course, has to uh, question the efficacy of this uh, product. I'm not saying that it's, it's not possible, uh, but uh, I, I'm very skeptical. Much of the smell of flatus is hydrogen sulfide, and uh, they claim that uh, they are reducing the amount of hydrogen sulfide in the uh, in the gas that is released, although they do not explain how they would do that and how these uh, natural ingredients uh, would be up to the snuff. But you never know. Uh, there may be something to this, but, you know, as, as I often it is up to those who are making a claim to prove that claim, to provide the evidence. It is not up to uh, the scientific community. It cannot be up to the scientific community to prove that something cannot happen because you can never prove a negative. I mean, no matter what kind of testing you do, all you can show is that under the conditions of the test, uh, you didn't see any results. But you can't prove that there might not be some other population somewhere where there would be uh, positive results. So it is up to those who are marketing flacusense to uh, put a bit of uh, rose aroma into their uh, advertising and uh, come up with the evidence. Let's see if James has an answer to my question about the link between Panama City, California and tofu. James. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, well, I'm your cement chemist friend. Okay. And I think you said Plaster City, did you not? I did. Well, that reminds me of gypsum. Uh-huh. And uh, so I looked up that tofu, in fact, contains gypsum, so that's my... Okay. Why does tofu contain gypsum? Well, it's, uh, I don't know, to coagulate or something like that. That is exactly right. Very good. So it yes, is, and I would also add, uh, you know, and like I mentioned, the cement chemistry stuff, you understand cement contains gypsum, and yes. the purpose is to be a retarder so it doesn't set before it um, 
like a flash set before it can start properly setting. And that's why they put gypsum and cement. Very good. Always nice to hear from people who know what they're talking about. So Plaster City uh, in California is indeed called Plaster City because that's where they get plaster and, and plaster is made from gypsum. Uh, gypsum is calcium sulfate hydrated form. And when you dehydrate it, you heat it, you get uh, pure calcium sulfate, and that can be used. You make drywall, you make uh, casts for broken bones, etc. But calcium sulfate is also the coagulating substance that is used to make tofu. So what is tofu? Tofu is made from soy milk. Soy milk, in turn, is made by taking soybeans, boiling them up, and mashing them, squeezing out the liquid. That's your soy milk. And when you add calcium sulfate to that, it curdles the soy milk. This is very much uh, like making cheese from regular milk. So you squeeze the uh, the curds that form, you squeeze out all the liquid, and what you're left behind is uh, is tofu. And tofu has become a very popular food in North America uh, in the last 30 or so years because it's a vegetarian meat. It has uh, very high protein. The protein contains all the amino acids that the, the body needs. Uh, the only trouble with tofu is that a lot of people object to the uh, non-taste of it and to the texture. But if you know what to do with it, if you know how to cook it, uh, you can make some delicious things out of uh, tofu. And I've got a little experience with that. I experimented with it, so I know that uh, one can make something uh, more than just passable with tofu. But you're quite right. The relationship is that Panama City is so-called, uh, or uh, Plaster City is so-called, because that's where they mine plaster, and the plaster in the form of calcium sulfate is used to coagulate uh, soy milk and make tofu. Very good. Uh, we'll take a little bit of a break here. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Now that I've had an answer to my Plaster City question, uh, here's another question for you guys. Exposure to what element caused some lighthouse keepers to go mad? What element, exposure, caused some lighthouse keepers to go mad? If you know, you give us a call, 514-790-0800, or text us at 514-800. Last week, I didn't get around to talking about uh, some artificial flavors, and I had promised to do that. So let's do it right now. There's a strawberry ice cream that boasts it is made with all natural flavors, and there's another cheaper version that lists artificial flavor among its ingredients. So which one would you expect to deliver a more authentic strawberry experience? Surely the, the natural flavor must be superior. How can artificial be expected to match the real thing? Well, surprise, surprise, or I wouldn't be bringing this up. The artificial strawberry flavor may actually be closer to the taste of real strawberries than the natural flavor. And therein lies some interesting chemistry. Of course, only a real strawberry tastes like a real strawberry. That's one of the reasons why consumers seek out natural flavor on the label. But are they really getting natural strawberry flavor? Not likely. How do we know that? Well, the amount of natural strawberry flavoring sold annually around the world exceeds the amount that could possibly be produced from all the strawberries grown in the world by a factor of about three. So what sort of magic is going on here? Here's a surprise. 
The term natural flavoring on the label of the strawberry ice cream does not mean that all the components have to come from strawberries. It does, however, mean that all the components have to come from natural sources. The ideal, of course, would be to use real strawberry juice, but that's too expensive. And as mentioned, there just isn't enough of it to meet the needs of all the palates around the world that crave strawberry flavor. This is where a flavor chemist or a flavorist enters the picture. His or her task is to reproduce the flavor and aroma of strawberries, since aroma is a major contributor to taste, by blending together readily available natural components. Real strawberry juice is used as the base, but other substances, such as the essence of cloves or extract of orris root, are then added with the hope of mimicking an overall strawberry aroma and taste. The result may be a close approximation of the desired flavor, but will not be identical to it. It cannot possibly be. Over 300 compounds have been identified as components of natural strawberry flavor, and this particular mix cannot be reproduced exactly by blending natural substances that do not originate from strawberries. But blending artificial or synthetic substances can come close. The creation of an artificial strawberry flavor requires the expertise of analytical chemists, synthetic organic chemists, and flavorists. First, an analytical chemist identifies the compounds that make up the flavor of strawberries. This is no easy task, given the large number involved. Advent of modern instrumentation, specifically gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, and nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, has, however, greatly facilitated this job. A gas chromatograph can separate the components of a mixture. The mass spectrometer can then determine the molecular weight of each component, as well as offer important clues about its composition. And then an NMR spectrometer can pin down the specific molecular structure. Once the compound has been identified, an organic chemist can attempt to synthesize it from simple raw materials, which may be derived either from petroleum or from plant or animal sources. If the synthesis is successful, the compound cannot in any way be distinguished from the one that is made by the strawberry plant. For example, methylbutanoate is one of the compounds that dominates natural strawberry flavor. It can be readily made in the lab from methanol and butanoic acid, but according to regulations, it then has to be termed synthetic or artificial even though it is identical in every way to the methyl butanoate that can be extracted from strawberries. In theory, each of the more than 300 compounds in strawberry flavoring could be synthesized and combined in appropriate amounts to reproduce natural strawberry flavor. It would have the same taste and have the same safety profile as real strawberry extract, but would still have to be called artificial. Synthesizing all the compounds involved in strawberry flavor would be a monumental job. It would be also unnecessary, since relatively few of these make a major contribution to the overall aroma and taste. Why then not select the ones that are really important and create an artificial flavor from these? Enter the flavorist. From the hundreds of bottles of pure chemicals on the shelves, Synthesized by organic chemists, he selects roughly 10 to 20, which according to analytical chemists have been found in strawberries and are most likely to contribute to the flavor. And now art begins to blend with science. 
the flavor it sniffs, tastes, mixes, adds, subtracts, or substitutes compounds until a quality strawberry flavor is achieved. This artificial strawberry flavor is in fact composed of compounds that are actually found in strawberries. It will still not have the same flavor as fresh strawberries because the flavor is due to a symphony of numerous compounds, many of which make subtle contributions. If the flavorist is not completely satisfied with his creation, he may try to improve on it by adding flavor compounds that are not actually found in strawberries. These may come either from the over 6,000 compounds that have been identified as contributors to the flavor of various foods, or from an array of synthetic compounds chemists have formulated to produce flavors that are not found in nature. 3-methyl-2-butyl-ethanoate, for example, is not found in nature, but has a decidedly fruity taste. It is used in flavoring of juicy fruit gum, but can be used to improve other flavors as well. Tasting mixtures of these compounds, as the flavorist and ultimately the consumer must, brings up the question of safety. While it is impossible to guarantee the absence of any adverse reaction to some component in an artificial or indeed in a natural flavor, it is reassuring that the compounds available to a, flavored, to a flavorist have undergone review by various health authorities and have been deemed to be generally recognized as safe. But there's a final point to remember. In general, artificial flavorings are used in processed foods, not your stalwarts of a nutritious diet. Your taste buds may react the same way to naturally occurring gamma-undecalactone in fresh peach juice as to its synthetic analog in a peach-flavored drink, but the juice is certainly a better nutritional choice, but not because the drink is artificially flavored. There are plenty of other reasons to avoid such products, mostly because they are very high in sugar. So now you have a bit of an insight into the difference between natural flavors and artificial flavors and uh, the role that chemistry plays in developing the flavor compounds that are put into our food. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let's hit the lines and go to Darlene. Hi, Darlene. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Okay. Go ahead. So I, have, I have an answer for the uh, telescope. I, I don't telescope. I didn't ask about telescope. For the for the oh okay the reason why lighthouse people uh, were going mad. Yes. Okay. So I I know it's something that they were. I don't know if it's the paint on the telescope, the innards of the telescope, or the lens of the telescope, but something was used or it was contaminated, something like that. Whoa, whoa! A lighthouse has nothing to do with telescopes. Well, I thought that they had to look outside, no? No, no. A lighthouse is just a tower that has a light in it to warn approaching ships of, of some hazard. Oh, I thought they had to look through, they had to use some kind of binoculars or something. No, 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 no. A lighthouse just okay. is light. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Let's try Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. I love your show. Uh, my, the answer is uh, mercury. Yes, and can you explain why? Uh, it was used to bathe the lenses that were used in the lighthouse, uh, reflective lenses, and they used to bathe them in a bath of mercury. No, no, no. I mean, you got the right answer. It's mercury, but nothing to do with the lens. 
the uh, uh, the light source actually rotates right in a lighthouse and in order to make that rotation smooth the base of the lamp uh, was on mercury mercury of course is, is a metal and it's very very smooth and it's liquidy and it supported the base of the uh, of the lamp so that it could turn smoothly and indeed when you have that much mercury in a closed environment the mercury vapor can be toxic, as many lighthouse keepers found out. It was similar with uh, the Mad Hatter. The, yeah, exactly. Exactly the same as the Mad Hatter. The Mad Hatter was mad because in those days uh, they used mercury nitrate in order to treat the felt that was used to make hats. Yeah. You know what You know what animal uh, the felt was made from? Uh, it's from a rabbit. Yes, exactly. So rabbit fur was the source of felt and was treated with mercury nitrate. Very good. All right, so we got to the bottom of of, uh, of that question. Okay, thanks very much for uh, uh, getting in on that. And uh, so I've got another question to throw out for you guys. What word derives from the Greek for bow because of its connection to poison arrows? So we're looking for the word that derives from the Greek for bow because of its connection to poison arrows. Now, I told you that I would... Uh, talk a little bit about a potential treatment for baldness. And that, of course, is, is exciting uh, uh, because any treatment for baldness that would work uh, would make a lot of money. Uh, right now, there's not a whole lot that you can do for uh, baldness. There's, of course, transplant uh, surgery. There are some very high-class uh, hair pieces. But in terms of, uh, of drugs, there's minoxidil lotion, uh, which works but not extremely well. And then there's finasteride, which is a drug that you take orally, and uh, it's not great. And also, it can reduce the sex drive, and it can affect fertility. So there's the constant search to find something that is better. And that, now researchers at uh, uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison have come up with something that just might do the job. And uh, it looks like a hat, but the inside of the hat has some electronics. And uh, these electronics put a gentle elect uh, produce a gentle electric pulse. And they have some evidence that this gentle electric pulse actually causes hair to grow. Somehow it stimulates the follicles into uh, activity. And uh, exactly how it works isn't clear, but it seems to work by stimulating the release of uh, natural chemicals that encourage hair growth, uh, such as uh, keratinocyte uh, growth factor and vascular endothelial growth factor. And uh, uh, of course, it still needs... Uh, extensive human trials uh, before it can be widely promoted, but it doesn't seem to have any downside. It, it uh, certainly is not going to produce any kind of toxic uh, results. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if anything comes of this. Now, this is not the same thing that you will see sometimes advertised in those magazines that you find in the pocket in the seat in front of you on the airplane. And uh, they have all kinds of hats and helmets that have uh, flashing lights uh, in them that claim to grow hair. None of those has any proven efficacy. This is this is very uh, different from that. Uh, this is not quackery. Uh, this may actually have uh, some uh, semblance of, of uh, you know, fact to it. But we'll just have to wait to see uh, what um, what happens. Uh, someone uh, called me during the week and wanted to know what Spanish fly was. 
And uh, it's an interesting question uh, because uh, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, there used to be a lot of talk about Spanish fly uh, because there was just a mention of this word and people's thoughts turned to carnal activities. Uh, actually, Spanish fly is not a fly at all. It's a beetle, and it produces a compound called cantharidin, which is an irritant of the urogenital tract. Uh, it isn't an aphrodisiac, but it can produce an erection. It can also pose a threat to human health, but apparently not to the health of male pyrocroid beetles, which dine on cantharide beetles. Females of this species reject males which have not eaten cantharidin. During the mating ritual, the male secretes a gooey substance which the female tastes. Only if she tastes cantharidin does mating become a possibility a good example of chemical warfare and species survival. The female will pass the cantharidin onto her eggs, which then are less appetizing to predators such as ladybugs. Natural world is really quite fascinating. Cantharidin is also used by dermatologists because it will um, burn warts off. It isn't uh, used as much now as it used to be because liquid nitrogen is... Uh, is more effective at burning off those uh, uh, those warts, but uh, Spanish fly is an uh, interesting kind of uh, of beetle. I also remember that uh, way back in the 1970s, they used to advertise Spanish fly brand candies, and of course they were playing up the idea that uh, it would uh, act as an aphrodisiac. But all you got were ordinary candies, and the candy was called Spanish fly. And so there was nothing illegal about it because you can call your candy whatever you want. But, uh, you know, they were toying with the idea that people would think that it would have some kind of an uh, aphrodisiac effect. It, of course, wouldn't uh, have done any harm because it was just ordinary candy, uh, except maybe to the teeth. On the other hand, uh, Radithor, that was a very different story. And it seems hard to believe now but back in the 1930s, a miracle cure, which actually contained radioactive radium, was widely promoted in North America by William Bailey, an ex-car swindler. Radithor was claimed to stimulate functional ability, lower metabolism, correct imperfect nutritional processes, and eliminate toxic waste. What it did was poison people. Bailey charged a dollar a day for the product, a staggering amount at the time. When asked how long it had to be consumed, he gave the pat answer, only as long as you want to stay healthy. While today we are protected from such overtly dangerous supplements, there are plenty of products on the market which make health claims that are as nonsensical as were the ones made on behalf of Redithor. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hi, Milad. Yes, Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. Uh, is there a way I can synthesize uh, uh, at home from mundane material a substance that is safe and cheap to, uh, to, uh, make, uh, to apply it on paper to make it water resistant? Not, not something that is easily done. I mean, you can make wax paper at home, but it really isn't 
worthwhile. I mean, the, the way you would do that would be to, you know, drip a candle uh, on on paper and then spread the wax while it's still warm, uh-huh. which is exactly how industry does it. Of course, they do it on a large scale with complex machinery. Uh, yeah. No, there's nothing. I mean, what what are you looking to do? Well, I just want to make water-resistant bags. For what? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's a secret. <laughs> Because I mean, one one way to do it is to just buy some silicone spray. You know, the spray oh. that you, you use uh-huh. on your boots. Uh-huh. But you wouldn't want that in contact with food. Oh, yeah, it's not for food, for sure. It's not for food. Per, uh, it's not going to be in contact with, with any food. Uh, I heard of a substance that you know, like it ends with a sulfate at the end. I don't know the. Uh, is there any sulfate at the end? Suffix. Uh, Something like sulfate. uh, I don't know, uh, or uh, copper sulfate. No, uh, it wouldn't be. It 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 might be perfluoroalkyl sulfate. Uh huh. uh, But you couldn't do that at home. No. No. Okay. 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 Thank you. All right. You you can buy water resistant fabric and paper though, which is simple. Okay. All right. Interesting story about ginger ale that, you know, comes up over and over again. Uh, In Canada, uh, the label says made from real ginger. In the U.S., it it no longer says that. In the U.S., uh, it says things like ginger taste, made with real ginger extract, real ginger flavor, flavor from real ginger extract, natural ginger flavor, but it doesn't say that it is made with ginger. And that's because of a number of lawsuits, both in the U.S. and Canada, that have Canada Dry engaged in false advertising by stating that the beverage was made with real ginger. And the plaintiffs claimed that they had purchased the product hoping for the health benefits that have been attributed to the consumption of ginger, but discovered that any ginger in the product was present in insignificant amounts. And uh, it's true, the listed ingredients are high fructose corn syrup, citric acid, sodium benzoate, which is a preservative, color, and natural flavors, no mention of ginger. But the manufacturer argues that natural flavors encompass those derived from ginger, but refuses to divulge exactly how much ginger extract is present while maintaining that the beverage is made using real ginger extract from ginger root. So anyway, the U.S. class action suits have been settled and uh, uh, allowing buyers who feel that they have been misled uh, to compensation of some $11 million, except in California, where the state places no cap on damages. In addition, the made-from-real-ginger claim on the label, as I said, will be removed and replaced with what I said before. Uh, But in Canada, uh, this uh, has not happened. There are no settlements, and uh, they still make the claim uh, that it's made with real ginger. And there are several interesting features to note in this uh, ginger caper. Didn't the plaintiffs read the list of ingredients and note the absence of ginger? When they saw made with real ginger, they wonder about how much was in there if they were looking for a therapeutic effect. After all, when it comes to any physiological effect, dosage is critical. Then, of course, there's the question of whether ginger actually has any medicinal properties. There's no doubt that ginger root has a long history. Uh, Spice, for sure, and also as a drug. 
Thousands of years ago, Chinese and Ayurvedic physicians were already recommending ginger root to treat digestive problems, flatulence, vomiting, diarrhea. Of course, to determine efficacy, we would like to have something more than reliance on folklore. Like any botanical, ginger root is composed of hundreds of compounds, with some, like gingerols, have interesting antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, at least in the lab. There are also sesquiterpenes. These are compounds with antiviral effects that in theory could help mitigate the symptoms of a cold. However, laboratory findings are not the same as clinical evidence. And there is for sure a shortage of that commodity. While there's a shortage, it is not a total absence of evidence. The best evidence is for relieving nausea and motion sickness with some weaker evidence for indigestion. There are also claims of reducing muscle pain, lowering blood sugar, lowering cholesterol, alleviating menstrual cramps, offering protection against Alzheimer's disease. There's no compelling evidence for any of this. Important to note, though, that most studies have used a dose of 1 to 2 grams of ginger root, which is far, far more than the trace amounts of ginger components that have been found when ginger ale was analyzed. One of the plaintiffs claimed that he started buying ginger ale on a doctor's recommendation more than 10 years ago. The doctor should have known that there was not enough ginger in the drink to have a therapeutic effect, even if such an effect exists. And if the patient felt no benefit, why did he keep buying the product? On the other hand, if it did feel an improvement, why is he complaining? About the presence of one ingredient in ginger ale, there is no argument. That's sugar. 35 grams of it in a can. Enough of a reason to limit consumption. If anyone wants to explore the effects of ginger, they can give ginger tea a shot. Place one tablespoon ground root in a teapot, add boiling water, steep for 10 minutes. You can add mint or cinnamon if you want somewhat better flavor. And you can label the beverage as made with real ginger, as well as sugar-free, if you like. Talking about sort of misleading uh, notions. One that, that uh, I have to address often because it's so popular out there is the common misconception that aspirin is found in the bark of the willow tree. No. A related compound called salicin does indeed occur in willow bark, thereby explaining the use of the bark as a medication since the time of Hippocrates. But salicin, is very irritating to the stomach, a problem that prompted the Bayer company to look for an alternative. One of their chemists, Felix Hoffman, synthesized acetylsalicylic acid in, 19, in 1898, and he found it to be a great improvement over other salicylates. And that was a triumph of chemistry over nature. Aspirin has since been found to do much more than alleviate pain. It is an excellent anti-inflammatory substance, and uh, many arthritis patients will vouch for that. ASA, as it is commonly known, also has an anticoagulant or blood thinning effect, which can reduce the risk of heart attacks. In fact, today, more aspirin is consumed as a heart attack preventative, generally in doses of about 80 milligrams a day, than as a painkiller. However, I have to add to this that there is no evidence that it will protect against a first heart attack, 
So for healthy people to be taking aspirin doesn't make any sense. If someone already has had a cardiac event, then the doctor may prescribe the small dose aspirin to be taken on a regular uh, basis. And just one other note about Felix Hoffman, the a gentleman who first synthesized aspirin. Uh, he did that because his father was suffering from arthritis and he had irritated stomach from the salicylates that were available at the time. So he wanted something that was kinder and gentler. He did find it. And furthermore, he discovered another compound that has a more checkered history, and that was heroin. So named because it was supposed to perform heroically. Well, it didn't. That's it. We are fresh out of time. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in life comes out just right.